We've been chasing all this kind of fame and reputation and interest and their visibility to the point that our papers were really just a white papers of the products rather than providing the actual scientific knowledge to the society. We just need to stop pretend to build a product that we don't know actually how to build mm -hmm. and then start doing science, which is the actual product that we were supposed to and we were trained to produce. This sounds like a big deal. <laughs> like this sounds oh, like this a big... is a big deal. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it's Rafik Rikorian, and this is Technically Optimistic. The first season of our show was all about AI, and we spent a lot of time exploring the deep challenges that AI is forcing us to face, like what AI might do to education, how it'll affect the information ecosystem, and why it's so hard to regulate. In episode six, I talked to Kyung Yun Cho, a professor of computer science and data science at New York University. And he spoke with us about a huge problem in AI research and development, one that is not discussed nearly enough. And that's the collapse of this distinction between academic research and AI product development. People like me and then people like my colleagues at academia, the ones who have been working on natural language processing for the past, let's say, 10 years or so, I think we've been somewhat too lazy. We were just enjoying the fact that we were at a field that was actually getting closer and closer to the real products to the point that the industry was pouring money and resources into this field. Now, people like me in academia, we should have done better and then thought about what should be the next things that we need to prepare ourselves for? That's my bet. <laughs> this was an eye-opening and fascinating conversation. It was so intriguing that we wound up discussing it for a while. But today, I want to bring you the rest of my conversation with him, which didn't make it into the episode. Beyond the crisis in the academy, Kyungyeon had tons of other interesting things to talk about, like some of the nuances of how language models actually work. He was such a fun guy to talk to, I could have definitely talked to him for hours more. As always, we'd love to hear what you think of the show. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, or just send us an email with your thoughts, feedback, or questions to technicallyoptimistic at emersoncollective.com. You can visit us on the web at emersoncollective.com slash technically-optimistic-podcast and follow us on social media at Emerson Collective. Here's my conversation with Kyungyeon Cho. Earlier this year, you organized a panel at ICML, the, the International Conference on Machine Learning, and it focused on AI and marginalized languages. You got to tell me a little bit about how that came about and the kinds of things that were discussed. Yeah, I mean, the, there were some, let's say, background stories behind this panel. I believe that the topic is just very timely and the topic that we should actually discuss about it very much so in this conference called ICMO, which is one of the premium venues in artificial intelligence. Now, some people ask me a question, why is it actually necessary to talk about language at the conference on machine learning? But then yeah, I'm like, well, you know, the language apparently is eating up the word of artificial intelligence and machine learning. So 
that doesn't sound like a good question to ask. But then the second question that I often get is, why do we need to talk about the marginalized languages when a lot of the issues surrounding large-scale language models seem to be more about the, let's say, future of AI, future of humanity, or the, let's say, social aspects of the AI and whatnot. So uh, I, I have a, my kind of own answer to that one. One of the reasons why I started getting into it, and a lot of people started to get into natural language processing, is to ensure the equity in information access. So there is a term called digital divide that started from the late 90s when the internet started to go global. Is that the Weirdly, the amount of the information is exploding, but the access to that exploding information is not really equally available for all the people in the world. Mm. There are people who have huge amount of information and access to it. And then there are people who don't have access to much of that information. And one of the reasons is that there is some weird imbalance between the language distribution of the information available on the internet and the language distribution of the people speaking those languages in the world. So one example I have is, so in Indonesia, there are about 300 million people. They speak, I don't know, often two of, let's say, 30 to 50 languages. Now, most of them speak, let's say, one or two top two languages. But the amount of resources you can find on the internet that are written in those one of two languages is actually smaller than the amount of information you can find on the internet that is written in Finnish, which is spoken by 6 million people at most. And then that kind of, let's say, inequity or the imbalance in the availability of information was the reason why I started working on machine translation. And that's the reason why a lot of people have worked on and then continue to work on machine translation and natural language processing. So that anyone, regardless of what their native tongue is, can read and understand and access all those information that is available on the vast sea of information that is the internet. Now, weird thing is that that has been going on, but when I look at more recent trend of this kind of building a multilingual language models or the large-scale language models, we actually stopped thinking too much about the language distribution that much. We used to do that until about, I don't know, 2015, 16, but nowadays we just simply crawl everything we can on the internet Mm -hmm. and then hope that this data that we have collected would include as many or the as diverse languages as, you know, we can imagine. And then we're going to hope again that this language model will become proficient in all those languages because it was just trained on huge amount of data. That's nice, but I don't think we can really build or engineer products based on hope. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's really a you know, sloppy practice, right? <laughs> so what are the languages that are going to be disadvantages in this kind of scenario? Languages that, for which the written contents are not available on the internet. Languages that, are, that don't have writing systems, for instance. The languages that are only spoken in, I don't know, very localized region in the world. And then there are so many of them. There are actually thousands of such languages. What that means is that the, we thought we were working on natural language processing and machine translation in order to lower this digital divide or the digital barrier by making all the contents available in all the languages in the world. But somehow we ended up in a situation where our technologies are in fact increasing this imbalance in the access to the information. And then we thought, okay, so this is something that we really need to discuss, but it's not only about the natural language processing problem, but it's really about the whole society and the whole, let's say, AI community's problem to tackle. Because we're talking about language, it's not only going to be about language alone. It's going to be about every single aspect of the society or our life where 
this kind of imbalance may get uh, worse. So that's why we decided to create this kind of panel discussion and then trying to build up the resources and build up the systems for those languages. So I'm actually very proud of the panelists we have. <laughs> oh, no, I mean, it looks super interesting. I mean, like, how do you think about in this type of world or these type of technologies capturing not just language, but also culture? Like, you know, I spoke to this one artist who has been trying to really explore the understanding of the word beauty. Mm. And so has been asking like Midjourney and others to like draw me beautiful people to try to understand what all the different variants look like. So how how do you go about capturing both language and culture as part of this? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the, well, it's not necessarily about, well, let me answer this in two different ways. One way is that this kind of, let's say, amplification of the particular stereotypes or the particular, let's say, cultural aspects has always been done right, throughout the humanity's history, in particular as the availability of the means of communication grew, this kind of amplification can happen really quickly. So one of the things that I always uh, find really surprising and a bit sad about visiting Korea is that in Korea, you know, there has a whole society. We have a very small number of, let's say, uh, criteria that we may use to determine whether that person is beautiful or not, right? And then it's so homogeneous throughout the society to the point that the, I'm always a bit saddened. And then I always wonder how that actually happened. Of course, you know, we can always think about, you know, oh, maybe because of the military dictatorship back then, I don't know, maybe Confucius, you know, I don't know, like the culture is like that. I don't know. But I think this kind of a say, reinforcement of stereotypes is bound to happen when the means of communication becomes more available. And also in a society where the diversity is really low. You know, in Korea, there's almost no diversity. It's a very homogeneous society. So everyone easily tend to end up thinking in the very same way or the very similar way. But that one, I don't think necessarily the language model is making it worse. Mm -hmm. But I think language model might actually contribute to that one a bit. And then the contribution part is the second aspect that I want to talk about. Not necessarily about the language model, but it's a lot more about the deployment of this kind of machine learning systems. So the very simple setup that I use to talk to my students about this issue often in my courses, let's say somehow there was a question to which the answer can be either yes or no, but it should be 60% yes, and then let's say 40% no. And then we collected all those data, and then we collected enough data, and then we fit our machine learning model that is so awesome that it actually tells me that the is 60% yes, and then 40% no. So far, so good. But then now I need to deploy this system. And then now we need to decide what we're going to give out to the user when the user asks this particular question. Mm -hmm. If you're building a chatbot, of course, we want to give the answer right directly. We're not going to say, oh, yeah, it's a 60% chance that it's yes, 40% chance that no. It works only when it's a yes and no. But if it's going to be a part of the conversation, it does make sense to give them the probability. Eventually, the user will have to choose or we have to make the choice for them. Now, how do we ensure that the across board, we're going to show users 60% time the yes and then 40% time no. If we simply decide, well, we're going to take the majority answer as the answer that we're going to provide to the user, we suddenly are, in fact, emphasizing beyond what our machine learning model has learned, the particular stereotype that was in the data set. Uh, yeah. So it's a weird thing. It's a weird decision that we need to make. And in particular, as the problem gets more and more complicated, 
how are we going to even take into account and what is the right way to evaluate whether the system is in fact reflecting the data correctly or is amplifying a particular aspect and which aspect do we allow it to amplify and then do we actually prevent it from amplifying? I think that there is a huge issue of the decision-making and the deployment that need to be taken into account. I also have a question then around the data collection in the first place, especially around these these marginalized communities. Like, Mm -hmm. There's a whole thread that we were exploring at some point of like data extraction, trying to mine data from these communities where they might not get something in return for it. And, you know, what should be the right way that we think about that? Like, how do we build the right kind of like partnerships, if that's the right word? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's, a, that's a really <laughs> challenging problem. And indeed, you know, that actually happens uh, in many places. And it's not only about the marginalized languages or the marginalized uh, societies, but you know, it's also the different, let's say, industry sectors, different, let's say, societal sectors, different, let's say, job categories and whatnot. They all have a different kind of incentive structure unless that incentive structure aligns well with this kind of, let's say, data extraction or the collection and then eventual system that's going to be built out of it, there's always going to be a bit of a friction. Now, the friction can exist as long as no one is get hurt. But when we talk about this kind of marginalized society or the marginalized, let's say, you know, the languages or whatnot, there can be some, you know, huge, let's say, uh, disadvantage these people actually suffer due to this kind of data collection procedure. So generally, I'm very much on the side of collective action in this particular case. So if there is a minority group within the society that may actually get harmed by future technological advances or the current one that can actually benefit the majority, then I believe that there has to be some kind of collective action, you know, via, for instance, government, in order to ensure that the balance is always somewhat maintained. So one can imagine that any, let's say, marginalized language-speaking community, very small one, that work together with, let's say, company in order to provide this kind of data collection and whatnot, then what we need to do is that essentially we use the text we get from the company in order to provide all those things that are missing from this community. Mm. You know, we can actually literally say that, well, all the students who are in this community are going to be educated for free because at the end of the day, what they are providing is, in fact, net benefit to the whole society. So we need to ensure that that kind of thing continues, right? I was looking at this blog post of yours, which I admit was a bit beyond me, but the title of the post was a question, are JPEGs and language models similar to each other? And you reference a New Yorker piece by the science fiction writer Ted Chang, where he describes ChatGPT as a blurry JPEG of the web. Can you walk me through that comparison a little bit? Yeah, so the... uh, I got really intrigued by the Ted Chung's op-ed talking about the how language model is just a blurry JPEG version of the whole society or the humanity. And I thought it was a pretty apt kind of a say, analogy there. Now, this analogy actually goes really, really deep. It actually goes into the heart of the information theory and also the actual compression technology as well. So at the end of the day, what is compression? Compression is to try to encode some observation into the minimal number of bits so that when we actually decode it out later on, we're going to see something that is very similar to the observation. Now, there are two types of the compression. One is the lossy compression, and then the other is a lossless compression. Lossless compression means that the, if we decode it out from this minimal number of bits, we should get exactly the same thing as what we uh, had originally. So anyway, that was a lossless compression. Now, what is lossy compression is that, you know, of course, so whatever has been generated, decoded out, is slightly different from the original one. 
Now, what that actually means is that if you look at all possible observations, let's say all possible images in the world, and then I'm going to apply some kind of compression, I take one image that is from the actual nature, I took a picture, and I do the low C compression, it's going to be encoded and decoded out into something slightly different. And then you can do that for every possible image in the world, and then see what is the collection of the decoded out images you have. That collection is slightly different from the collection of the original images. And that's what we actually call generalization. That is that the, when a machine learning system sees something new and then is able to answer it correctly, that's called generalization. In the case of the language model, if the language model generates something that it never saw before during training, that's generalization. And in fact, in compression, if the compression is imperfect, this collection of the newly decompressed images contain images who are not there in the original images or the examples. And then that's the generalization. If the compression was perfect, so we're going to encode it and then decode it, and we always get the exactly same thing, mm -hmm. there is no generalization. The collections are exactly same with each other. So that's why I think this JPEG, uh, let's say, analogy is in fact perfect analogy to what language models do. Language models read the text, trying to compress it into this internal representation, and it tries to decode it out. And this process is not perfect. And then because it's not perfect, when we look at all the decoded out text from this language, we do see that some of the texts, in fact, are the new texts that never existed or were never written by humans. Now, kind of the other side of this coin that is worrying in terms of the marginalized languages and whatnot is that when we do this kind of encoding and decoding of all possible texts in the world, now we are going to get some of the text that was not there in the original set. What that means is that this is a newly created text that was never written by humans. But at the same time, the original set is going to have some text that is not going to be included after going through this language model process some of the text will be lost. Mm -hmm. Now, what are those subset of the text that are going to be lost? Often, they are the minority population within the training set. So things that are more rare, things that are more outlierish, things that are more you know, unique, they tend to be ignored because the compression is a process of trying to figure out what are the most common patterns and then try to preserve that as much as they can. When we compress these neural nets, what are the classes of examples that are being lost? Often they are the rare, unique, and novel instances. And then marginalized languages tend to be like this. That's, that's fascinating. That, that's such a great analogy, actually, the way you explained it. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Ted Chang, I'm a big fan of him. <laughs> He's awesome. <laughs> he is awesome. I totally agree yeah. with that. You actually do some form of like pro bono office hours. I was wondering, could we use that as a as a proxy for interest or proxy of like what's going on in the world right now. So I'd be curious, obviously without giving me names, just like what are the types of organizations? How has that changed over time? The kinds of questions they ask. I'm just so curious. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, that, it, that, you know, the, I started the pro bono office hour at the beginning of the pandemic and then that went really strongly uh, for about two, two, three years. But now that the pandemic is largely behind us, you know, the number of the office hour requests has dropped almost close to zero. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. But that said, um, most of the people who reached out to me during pandemic for this pro bono office hours uh, included small startups. So people who have founded or who are working at the small startups 
And some of the, let's say, people who are working at a big companies, but they are not tech companies. Because at the end of the day, this machine learning, AI, and data science are not only done by those five big techs in Silicon Valley. In fact, every single company, every single industry sector in the world somehow will eventually benefit from this kind of technologies. And then some of those companies are indeed investing in recruiting some of the data scientists, AI researchers, as well as the machine learning engineers. Now, unfortunately, they are often recruited and then they join the company, but they realize that the, well, the company is not really ready or prepared to benefit from or implement or benefit from this kind of technologies. Mm-hmm. Quite a lot of them reached out to me to just talk about what would be the kind of, let's say, very first step that needed to be taken in order to start preparing the organization to work with the increasing amount of data and then trying to use this kind of latest technologies. And then, you know, being a professor, one nice thing is that many of my students graduate and then go to industry. And then, you know, they actually tell me about what kind of things they do. So, you know, I, I try to kind of say, you know, transfer some of this knowledge that I have acquired from looking at my students as well as you know, I do what I have done to the places where I think this kind of knowledge is just not there at the moment. And that's indeed true. So for instance, fashion sector, you know, the magazines, you know, the pu- publishing houses as well as you know, manufacturers, they all can benefit from their own data, their own process, but they just don't have experience nor the preparation. Hmm. What are you optimistic about, given all these things that are changing? Like, what's the thing that gets you really excited? Oh, by the way, I'm a very optimist. <laughs> oh, you got, I can tell. I can absolutely yeah. tell. <laughs> um, one thing that I find really exciting is this possibility that this kind of generalization from these generative models is, in fact, a way for us to augment our lack of creativity. Let's put it like that. Mm. Now, it's a weird thing. So a lot of people talk about the hallucination of these large-scale language models as something that needs to be fixed because that is actually harmful or you know, it is problematic. But I feel like hallucination is more like a feature that we have to harness the power of. Okay. So now, first of all, how do we know that models are hallucinating? Because I think we are actually asking too easy a question to these models. And then when these models gave us the answers, we can immediately tell whether the answers are correct or incorrect. And when the answers are incorrect and still fluent, we are going to say that, well, hallucination. These models are hallucinating. But if we go slightly further, into, let's say, the domain of the more challenging problems, there's almost no case where we can tell or there is the one right answer. So for instance, let's think about the treatment plan. So let's say, you know, a patient who has a pretty severe, let's say, rare disease, go find the expert. And then the physician is going to come up with a nice, let's say, treatment plan. But it's a rare disease, it's a challenging disease, There's no such thing as, okay, here's the treatment plan that's going to have the 100% success rate, cure rate. So what these doctors do, they try to come up with a very complicated treatment plan that contains multiple, let's say, procedures, multiple drugs, multiple, let's say, I don't know, rehabilitation and whatnot. And it's very complicated. There's no like the right answer there. But then often what is really difficult is that in this kind of scenario, Doctors can only tell you about the things that they have seen or that they can think of. Sure. But every individual, as we all know, every individual is limited. We cannot look at all possible documents in the world. We cannot talk to all possible doctors in the world. We cannot read all possible papers in the world. It's impossible. So we are actually 
very limited in our creativity as well as intuition in order to come up with a plausible hypothesis. And I believe that this kind of generative models, as they get increasingly more powerful, they will in fact allow us to consider options that we just never even thought that we should have. Another example is the drug discoveries. It's not only about coming up with a new molecule that's going to target particular say, biological pathway that is known to lead to certain, let's say, symptoms of a disease. But in fact, we often don't know how to define a disease. The definition of disease changes, evolves over time. That, that happens because we don't know what those diseases are. Mm -hmm. And even if we know a disease, we actually don't know what are the biological pathways that lead to this kind of symptoms of this disease. And then even if we knew all those biological pathways, we don't know what are the right targets, biological targets we have to design molecules for. We do a lot of science and then we do rely on the ingenuity of medical professionals and whatnot. But unfortunately, our ingenuity is very limited. If a disease is complicated, we don't know how to come up with a biological pathway. If the biological pathway is complicated, we don't know what is the right, let's say, targets that we need to design the molecules for, and on and on and on. Now, can these language models that hallucinate a lot give us a plausible hypothesis that we can verify experimentally as well as through the various trials? And if they are wrong, that's okay. As long as it can really give us a diverse set of the plausible hypotheses that we could not have come up with ourselves. So I think it's actually fascinating how well these language models work and then how these language models can give us all those plausible answers. Sometimes are so, you know, at the, uh, the hilariously incorrect that we're like, well, that was unanticipated. And <laughs> that's actually what we want in order to find all these plausible hypotheses. So I'm very, very optimistic about it. That's going to change what we mean by doing science, drug discovery, you know, the healthcare and whatnot down the road. I mean, this is, you are the first person who, who has said hallucinations might be a feature, not a bug, which I find actually mind-blowing in some way. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, you know, I spoke to a woman about the writer's strike in Hollywood. Mm. And her point is that these systems, similar to like maybe our JPEG conversation, has ingested all the creative input from the past. And so therefore, that's the reason we're on Mission Impossible 7 and Indiana Jones 5, as opposed to like something new. How, how do I then like rectify what you said with what she said? Yeah, that's actually a great point. In fact, you know, this is one question that I thought uh, Sam Altman and Gary Marcus and you know, the Christina Montgomery you know, the, at the Senate hearing on the, you know, the AI regulation earlier on, that I was looking very forward to hear the answer from them about. But unfortunately, they actually didn't have any answer, yeah. <laughs> sadly. So I always think about it from, again, you know, the two directions. That's what I always try to do. Okay, let's not think about it from the one direction only. But the one aspect is that a lot of the creative professionals, including writers, at the moment, I don't think the, our society has actually done that well in terms of treating them. Mm. Some, very few writers are very successful. Mm. They make a lot of money. They are very famous. They have a reputation. But in fact, the 99% of the writers are not going to have that kind of reputation nor the financial stability anyway. Painters, even worse. And then songwriters, actually even worse because yeah. there are so many you know, amateur songwriters who don't actually get paid at all and that they tend to actually spend their own, own money. And I believe that the, as a society advances, we really have to think about what is the right way for us to support this kind of creative professionals so that the whole society 
becomes creative and also are much less about the survival, but much more about the thriving as a society. So for that one, I believe that we really have to change what we do as a collectively as a society. But the second thing is that I think what is missing at the moment is the, the system that allows this kind of product deployment companies or the product manufacturers to pay creative professionals when credit assignment is extremely fuzzy. Yeah. So I don't believe that we can do what has been done with the songs. So in the case of the songs, every country has their own kind of association. That association is going to track where that uh, individual song is played and how often. And then they're going to go after them, get the money, and then distribute the royalty to all those writers, you know, the singers and all those players and the people who are involved in those things. With the AI or large-scale language models or this kind of machine learning technologies, unfortunately, tracking down is going to become almost impossible. Yeah. So then, can we actually come up with a mechanism that does not require us to track down individuals, but based on the collective statistics of how often these models are used, and then what are the general outcome, and then trying to figure out which group of these creative professionals who have contributed to the data gets kind of the say fair share, hmm. not at the individual level. I think that that as soon as we start thinking about the individual level, the whole process stalls. I think it has to be a more of a collective thing. What that means is that the many of these influential writers will have to actually give up on their financial, let's say, uh, prospects as well to a certain degree for others. That was also mind-blowing. I really appreciate that. Oh. Kyung Young, thank you so much for talking with me today. This was great. Well, thanks, Prof. I, mean, I feel like you know, I just rambled too much. My no, no, no. You, you gave me so much to think about, which I really appreciate. Our email address is technicallyoptimistic at emersoncollective.com. Follow us on social media at Emerson Collective. I'm Rafik Rikorian. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time on Technically Optimistic. <laughs>